From the Jewish Federation of Florida's Gulf Coast, this is the Parsha Pathways Podcast. Dive in to the weekly Torah portion led by rabbis local to Florida's Gulf Coast, Pinellas Pasco, and Hernando Counties. Participate live every Friday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time via Zoom. Visit jewishgulfcoast.org slash Parsha to learn more. Station identification. This is Rabbi Matt Berger from Temple Avant Shalom. Early Shabbat Shalom to all of you, and thank you so much for for gathering here today for another edition of Parsha Pathways. So I was thinking about starting it off, our discussion of Vayetze, uh, and he went out by playing the uh, intro chords to Stairway to Heaven. which probably would be pretty appropriate, but I do have a, a musical selection a little bit later on in our uh, study of the, the portion of the week. Um, and this describes uh, Jacob kind of moving away from his parents' house uh, upon their suggestion. Uh, Rebecca, the mom, urging Jacob to flee because Israel uh, Esau wanted to kill him because uh, of an earlier issue having to do uh, with some inheritance. And Isaac commanding Jacob to go to Padan Aram in a parallel speech. Um, and one thing that we're going to look at is there's a similar verb in Hebrew that's used for, for both of these when Rebecca is talking to Jacob and when Isaac, the father, is talking to uh, Jacob. Um, Jacob did pretty well in Haran. He lived there for 20 years, had, if you can believe it, four wives, uh, 12 kids, became very, very wealthy over time. Um, The part that all of us are aware of is the 14 years working for Laban in order to marry Leah first, and then Rachel, and Jacob then finally making his way back to the home front, to Canaan, the land of Israel, uh, with his family, his now much larger family, um, to go back to his father's house. So he's going to come back full circle. Uh, And right away, from the Hebrew, there's a pretty distinct difference between Jacob's leaving, and for instance, Abraham or Abram's leaving. So in Lech Lecha, uh, we get the word go, which means uh, it's halach, which means to walk. And that's when God calls Abraham to go from the place that he's comfortable with. Um, whereas Jacob, the word that's used is vayetse, which means to leave. So Before we get uh, anywhere else, let's move to my text sheet. Let's hope it works. I'm going to share the screen. And first, let me open this up. Close back. Get back to there. Share the screen. There we go. All right. 
Can you see it? Yes. You can. All right. And I can hide that sidebar and scroll it all the way up. And uh, what I decided to do was put together uh, not all from this Torah portion, a little bit from last week's Torah portion, and then what we have in the beginning of this week's Torah portion, which starts with Genesis chapter 28, verse 10, um, with each of the different speakers providing a particular uh, sentence or command about who's moving here and there. So uh, I always like to get uh, some readers. So if someone would like to read, this is text number one. And just read all three, or it says, you know, Rachel, now my son. And uh, all right, hold on, let me see if I can get this a little bit bigger so I can see everybody. There we go. All right, Jackie, you had your hand up. Just unmute yourself and away you go. You can read it. Oh, now my son, listen to me. Flee at once to Haram. Jacob, up and go to Padan Haram. The narrator says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haram. All right, thank you. So um, in two of these cases, in the case of Rachel and in the case of, um, uh, actually that's supposed to say Isaac, excuse me, not Jacob, um, but both dad and mom are using the, the command form. So get up and go. And uh, the verb is lakum which means to, it either means to get up or it means to, uh, can mean to flee, or it can mean like, you know, get up and go. You know, it's time for you to go. Whereas this is a little bit more of a, a passive word, um, meaning Jacob, he left, which is a little different from, from fleeing. Um, and it doesn't seem to quite match the intensity, at least from the narrator's description of how Jacob goes from one place to another, with originally how his parents were uh, really telling Jacob to go. Um, and why do you think, the question would be, is why do you think there's a difference um, in, these, in these two cases? So mom and dad, you know, saying, you know, you got to get out of here now versus Jacob when he's leaving Beersheba. This is after staying. Uh, Jacob left Beersheba and then set out for Haran. So we're really talking about the same movement of the same individual, yet the parents seem to be much more excited, whereas the narrator seems to be much more chilled and relaxed about the, uh, the situation. But we're talking about the same exact action that Jacob's going to do. We just have really three different characterizations of it. 
one flea, which uh, certainly has a sense of urgency to it, up and go, it's a little bit different from flee, and then to leave, which I would think is the more mellow of the, the three options. Any ideas why there might be a difference between the two? If you don't have any ideas, that's okay, because our next text is going to help us out. It's kind of a challenge. All right, so let's go to the second text. And this is going to try and explain the apparent differences between what Rachel's saying, what Isaac's saying, and then what the Torah narrator is saying. Um, Rashi, who is, uh, lived uh, 1140 to 10, uh, 1040 to 1105 in France, um, he noticed the difference. He noticed the similar words that the parents used and the slightly different verb that the Torah narrator used, and he wanted to make sense of it. So who'd like to read this one right here? This is the second text. Marty. All right, thanks. This clause tells us that the leaving of a righteous person from a place makes an imprint. As long as the righteous person is in the city, he is its glory and light and majesty. When he leaves, its glory and light and majesty are evacuated. So Rashi's going to focus in on this word leaving. Um, but what's interesting about it is a lot of times when you speak of an important person and kind of what they're doing in an area, you talk about what they're actually doing. Whereas Rashi's kind of looking at this uh, from the flip side and saying sometimes you can only really tell of somebody's presence when there's a vacuum, meaning when they actually leave. Um, so focusing on absence rather than presence. Um, and it might seem like, like an interesting, interesting comment um, because, you know, wouldn't we want to hear about kind of the exploits or the good things that Jacob did uh, in the particular area. I mean, obviously, he's increasing the size of his family, and then at least later on, he's going to go back to the land of Israel to kind of get back in gear in terms of perpetuating Judaism from one generation to the next. But he does have this 20-year kind of sideline where he's off in another area before he's getting back to um, to his homeland. Um, and Rashi's actually not the the first person to talk about this idea that sometimes you really only get the sense of the character when the character kind of moves away 
or when the character is is absent. Uh, so, for instance, um, sometimes you might take for granted that a character is in a novel, and then only when the character leaves for a while do you realize how important that character was to the story. Um, uh, Aviva Zornberg, in a really great book called uh, The Beginning of Desire, it's her commentary on Exodus, uh, professor, um, she makes a connection with this comment by Rashi and a selection from a book by Jean-Paul Sartre, which is called Words, which is his uh, um, memoir of when Jean-Paul Sartre was a kid. So it's kind of an autobiographical, uh, autobiographical story um, for him. Uh, someone would be interested in reading this, uh, text number three. And it talks about the absence and the presence. Alan? Okay. There you go. My grandfather made a pronouncement which pierced me to the heart. Someone's lacking here. It's Simonotte. In the center of a tumultuous circle, I saw a pillar, Monsieur Simonot himself, absent in flesh and blood. This astonishing absence transfigured him. So Rashi obviously had no idea who Sartre was, because um, it's you know hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of years later. So there's no channeling of it, but um, I think the sentiment is uh, somewhat similar. Um, in the case of uh, Jean-Paul's uh, grandfather's statement, something about the absence of Monsieur Simonot um, had a big impact on his grandfather, which probably means it had a big impact on Jean-Paul Sartre um, as well. And the absence kind of changed his perception of the character. Um, you think uh, things like this happen kind of in our lives, you know, where we have a particular character or somebody that we know in our life, and then they're in our life for a while, and whichever way, shape, or form the person's in, whether they're very close or whether they're you know an important acquaintance and then once they leave then we have this realization of man i never realized how important this person was in my life you know it would be obvious if it was a close family member and perhaps a little bit less obvious if it was you know a more oblique friend or an acquaintance or maybe someone that you you work with. Any of you um, have a similar experiences with that? Would you clarify, please? Um, did Mr. Simonot die or was he just gone? Um, let's it's see. It's not clear. Absent. He's absent in flesh and blood, so he must have died. Well, 
he was absent from the room, so he couldn't see his body, but did he die? Yeah, I can't tell you whether that meant that he died or that he was gone, but I'm assuming, let's say that he didn't die, but he just oh. was still alive, but then out of the room, I think it's more out of the story for an extended period of time. You know, not like, you know, somebody's going to have lunch and they're coming back in two hours, you know, but, you know, has left, has left the building for quite some time. Okay. Because Ellen? I, had, I had another question. This is, I've now read it three times or four times. In the center of a tumultuous circle, I saw a pillar. Now, as soon as I read that, I kind of thought of the pillar as a, almost like a statue of Monsieur Saminot. And the statue would be absent in flesh and blood. And that could make somebody realize that they were, this person was really gone and what a terrible tragedy or whatever, or I miss him. I don't know if that's what that's supposed to mean, but that's what I thought. Um, you know, whether, whether or not it's a, you know, in this case, um, you know, not being an expert on, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre by any stretch of the imagination, um, I think he's seeing kind of a representation of him or he's realizing in his mind, the grandfather is, how important this other guy, Simonote, was in his life. And he realizes now what's missing and almost kind of sees like a monument to him because his presence is so large in his life. One of the reasons in all likelihood that Aviva Zornberg brought in this selection from the memoir words is because of the word pillar. So not just the, the absence, but um, uh, Jacob is ultimately going to make a pillar at Bethel or Beit El, which is the house of God. So that's kind of a parallel um, in this with the story that's in in Vayetze. So you, you have somebody leaving, going from one place to the next, not going to be in a particular location for a real long time. And then this notion of a pillar, um, in Jacob's case, because Jacob realized something that was very important, which was God's presence and kind of a, a shift in his mind between his relationship with Judaism and his relationship with God or the higher power that he finally recognized. You know, it's not to say that Jacob didn't recognize these things before, but certainly in the text, we didn't necessarily get a sense, yay or nay, that that was happening. But clearly later on, when Jacob's setting up an actual stone pillar, kind of like a monument, like when you go hiking and you see those cairns, you know, which is either someone was here and they want other people to know, or there's going to be a fork in the road and this cairn, this pile of rocks is going to tell us there's going to be a fork in the road, so watch out, you know, and pick your, pick your route um, wisely. Um, so the void that we're talking about with Jacob 
could refer to Jacob leaving his family's house, his mom and dad's house. That's one possibility. Um, one other possibility, which is more kind of on an emotional or psychological level, is Jacob kind of making the, the separation between um, himself as a young adult and then detaching himself from his parents, meaning he's figuring out who he is as an adult and as an individual human being, you know, which usually starts with fits and starts in early teenage years and then, you know, usually doesn't come into fruition, you know, until many, many years later. Um, and one other void that we could be talking about, which I alluded to a little bit before, is Jacob's going to take a 20-year detour, so to speak, from carrying on Jewish tradition, meaning he's going to a completely different place, you know, in ancient Mesopotamia, and he's not going to necessarily reclaim his Jewish roots until he's able to come back 20 years later. So it could be the physical person, meaning Jacob's leaving a void in his parents' house. Or it could be a little bit more cerebral or psychological. Um, and then finally, if you look at it from his connection to, to God and to the, his role in the generational line of Torah going from one generation to the next in Judaism, um, he was kind of, you know, maybe putting it in neutral and then only when he decides to come back, putting it back into gear to kind of come full circle. Marty. Does the Torah tell us what he did for those 20 years or so? Um, I mean, we, get, we, we do get uh, certain things. I mean, we, we learn a lot about Jacob in the story. I mean, he doesn't get quite as much press perhaps as maybe Joseph you know, who probably gets the most press, you know, in this uh, latter section of the book of, of Genesis. Um, but we certainly learn kind of what his life's like when he goes to Laban, um, you know, not marrying the younger before the elder, kind of the switcheroo with Leah and Rachel at the wedding canopy. We learn about Jacob, um, you know, amassing a large kind of, fortune with animals and the like. Later on, we also learn when he's about to leave Laban, um, I think, let's see. Yeah, when he leaves Laban, there's a little bit of a argumentation, meaning uh, Jacob and Rachel kind of steal out Jacob and his family in the middle of the night, and then Laban kind of catches up to him because Jacob was like, you know, see ya. He had had enough living with Laban. And then Laban catches up to him and said, you know, why were you, you know, kind of running away and fleeing in the night? And um, Jacob was concerned that Laban was going to take some of the possessions that Jacob thought was rightfully his. Whereas other people in a commentary talk about Rachel perhaps stealing father's, her father's idols and not wanting to get caught. That's not in the Torah, but that's just a, 
a rabbinic um, fill-in-the-blank commentary. Um, so I thought, and this is the musical, so I'm going to stop the share here. Then I'm going to go to, let's see. Here we go. Wednesday morning at five o'clock as the day begins. Silently closing her bedroom door, leaving the note that she hoped would say more. She goes downstairs to the kitchen, clutching her handkerchief. Quietly turning the back door key Stepping outside she is free Let me get back to the share screen. And all right, so take a look at the text here. We just heard it. You can hear me, right? Um, so this is what I thought of when I uh, was looking at some of these commentaries about the fleeing that the parents want them to do. For good reason, Esau was really PO'd. Um, and then kind of the different notion of she's leaving home, which uh, in a way reminds me of 20 years later, the way Jacob's going to leave Laban. Kind of in the middle of the night, um, you know, quietly turning the back door key. And then later on, the parents are going to figure out what actually happened, you know, to the daughter. But of course, they're left with a lot of questions. Um, so, what kind of similarities do you see, if any, um, between what this daughter's doing with the parents and kind of how the parents are feeling, and then Jacob kind of his notion of needing to get away, either in the beginning of his trek to where Laban is, or 20 years later when he decides to come back with his much larger family and all of the animals and whatnot back to Canaan. Any similarities or differences between the two? Marty, and then Jackie. Well, she's she's stealthfully leaving. She is, um, you know, she's at five. First of all, five o'clock in the morning, I wouldn't get up. Yeah, the parents <laughs> even are, if I want to leave, my parents, 
So, um, but, and then she's quietly turning the back to a key. She is very quiet about it. So she's, you know, it's just like Jacob did going out of Laban. Yeah, and it, and it really could work both ways. It could be the initial leaving, you know, just because his parents are up in arms and it's flea, that doesn't necessarily mean he's running out the door. It just means he could be doing this kind of under cover of darkness and then no one's really going to notice. Calls from Ralph and Mummy. Absolutely. And then Jackie. Is she on the phone or something? I have no idea. Uh, no, uh, no, my thought was that it is both. Uh, it describes both Jacob leaving his home, but it also describes uh, uh, them leaving uh, Laban's house. He, uh, Laban was not a really very decent father-in-law. Uh, he tricked uh Jacob into marrying Leah uh, first. Uh, he uh, really took advantage of Jacob. So uh, there were, uh, after 20 years, I can understand why he would leave. You know, I've had enough. And, but, uh, and Rachel and Leah, they were leaving their father. But they probably had a greater affection at this point from Jake for Jacob than they did for their father because they would have seen and experienced uh, uh, Laban's greed. He really took advantage of the wealth that Jacob created for him. Sure, I mean, and you know I can totally understand you know Rachel and Leah you know, to a certain extent being put upon because then yeah. it, it sets up a scenario where their husband, Jacob, is potentially going to be super frustrated and or angry at the situation, which could color the husband-wife-spousal relationship, you know, yeah. as in-laws can sometimes do or as, you know, immediate family can sometimes do as well. Ellen? Um, in the second part of the song, of the part of the song that we have here, it, to me, I thought of um, kind of sour grapes. Like, look, she's leaving. We gave, we gave her this, we gave her that. We sacrificed for her and all she can do is leave or all he can do is leave. Um, maybe Laban was thinking about his daughters too. <laughs> but um, that's the way I saw the similarity is that that sour grapes attitude that we hope, um, we hope we don't transfer ever to our own kids. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's almost like a, an elegiac lament of a woe is me um that Laban, Laban was probably feeling um to a certain extent and who knows maybe Isaac and Rebecca were feeling that as well um one of the really cool things about this Beatles song is it 
really juxtaposes kind of what's going on in the mind of the parents to what's going on in the mind of the kid who just wants to be free, you know, of the parents' rule and how different the parents' understanding of things and how the kids' understanding of things, and we're talking about the same reality, can be, the perception can be so utterly different. Um, and all of these are part and parcel of the complex narrative of these family stories in, in Genesis. You know, they're really like a diagnostic and statistical manual that like psychologists use. Because um, you, you really see kind of the um, humanity in all of its heroism and courage, as well as, you know, some of the foibles that individuals have because of their emotions um, and their connections to people, whether positive or sometimes even troubled. Hi. I'm Maxine Kaufman, Executive Director of the Jewish Federation of Florida's Gulf Coast, and I'm quickly interrupting this episode to tell you a bit about the organization that brings you the Parsha Pathways podcast. Welcome to the world of the Jewish Federation, where the Jewish values of compassion, charity, generosity, and responsibility inspire us to improve the quality of life for people in our community, in Israel, and around the world every day. It is time to meet the challenges of modern Jewish life, both at home and overseas, and to provide the financial resources needed to fund the many services, programs, and activities that are demanded of us to sustain and continue to grow a strong, vital, and vibrant Jewish life. Programs like Parsha Pathways are brought to you free of charge, but donations are always welcome. Visit jewishgulfcoast.org slash donate to learn more. Um, one of the things that's certainly happening both for Jacob when he decides to leave home and for Rachel and Leah when they decide to marry Jacob and then ultimately the whole family minus Laban leaves Haran is this notion of you're kind of connected to your parents first biologically and then you know just in terms of your life um, and then there's a cleaving of this. What's interesting in, in Genesis is the word that's, that's used um, for coupling, which is uh, text number four. Someone want to read that? I can't. Uh, Kelly, yeah. Thank you. Sure. Hence, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife so that they become one flesh. So then the question is, when, when there is this kind of detachment from 
the parents, and then clinging to the wife, um, there's almost like an abandonment that seems to be happening. Like you have to create this separation and you almost, at least according to the notion in Genesis, you can't equally be cleaving to parents and your spouse, or in Jacob's case, spouses, um, at the same time. So you have to kind of make a break between the fixed and regular routines that you had when you were a kid growing up, or to a certain extent if you're an adult kid living at home, versus when you finally decide to move away at your own, on your own. But one thing that's very interesting is this section in Genesis chapter 2. What's the couple we're talking about? This is Genesis chapter 2, really early on. So what particular couple are we talking about? Maxine. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Did Adam and Eve have parents? <laughs> they did not have parents. So what's interesting is this paradigm that the Torah is setting up is at first with Adam and Eve who didn't have any of these particular issues because God created them or depending on which creation story you're looking at, Eve was created from the rib. But anyway, you slice it. They weren't birthed um, and therefore don't have any, you know, they're not abandoning parents or leaving any parents. But of course, all of us, when we decide to get married to whomever we decide to get married to, if we decide to do it at all, we have the added complications that all of us had, hopefully, a parent or parents, and then we're now deciding to go in a different direction, which then will either hopefully not have parents being like the Beatles and lamenting and as uh, Ellen said, kind of like, uh, what was the word you used? Le like a Sour grapes. Sour grapes. I like that. Sour grapes. <laughs> Self-pity sour grapes. Self-pity sour grapes. And then, you know, so that's one side of the coin. And then the other side of the coin is, you know, how does the individual leave their parents, you know, physically? And how does that relationship move on uh, to another chapter? Marty. Well, that, that's basically what I was going to ask. I mean, they physically left their mother and father, but did they emotionally leave their mother and father? Did they yeah. break ties and say, you know, that's it? Or did they still have an emotional tie to them? Um, you know, I think in the case of the story, I, I would bet that there probably wasn't much visiting going on back and forth given the length involved could there have been letters or messages that would be sent through caravans probably but you know we're they're not calling each other on the phone and if there was any sort of communication it was probably very one-sided and then they would have to wait for the uh you know there's there's no you know family therapy, let's say, in the midst of those 20 years because they're in two separate locations and they didn't have Zoom. I think 
Dorothy had her hand up or Tom? I, I, no, I, I did. Well, it seems to me the question is, I thought Marty was asking, were they still emotionally connected to the parents? Which, which we may all be, although we don't want to be. Mm. Or we, yeah, do, I mean, we don't. You, some people are still connected to their parents when the parents have been dead for 50 years. Yeah, I mean, for sure, he's there. there is a connection because he goes back to the father's house. Um, so who knows what either parties were thinking about in the interceding 20 years. You know, the Torah is kind of a blank canvas on that. You know, sometimes the Torah gives us a lot of information on what's happening in somebody's head or what's happening in terms of action on the ground. And then sometimes we don't get much. Was well, there any of the commentaries that said anything about it? Any of the commentaries? Uh, there definitely are some commentaries that try and, you know, elucidate that a little bit. But uh, not not a tremendous not a tremendous amount. Um, so that's uh, text four and then text five. So there's this notion of leaving home, and then much later on in the story of coming home, and then on the way coming home, you're going to get. The story about Laban. So remember I was talking about how Jacob kind of left in secret. I mean, how can you leave in the middle of the night with a whole bunch of animals and, you know, dozens and dozens of people? Um, so I put in two sections here, one from last week's tour portion. That's this first section. So that kind of gives you a little bit of like who Jacob was as a personality and who Esau was and kind of the relationship that the parents had, which was one of favoritism, unfortunately. And then this second section is what happens at, toward the end of this week's portion by Eitze. So we could have one reader for both of them, for sure. Anyone interested? Tom. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter and a man of the outdoors. But Jacob was a mild man who stayed in camp. Isaac favored Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebecca flavored Jacob. Why did you flee in secrecy and mislead me and not tell me? I would have sent you off with festive music with timbre and lyre. You did not even let me kiss my sons and daughters goodbye. Very well, you had to leave because you were longing for your father's house. So, uh, in the first half, favoritism, um, which sets up the kind of headbutt relationship between the twins, which is only then exacerbated by the selling of the birthright, and then only later once Isaac is dying, exacerbated by the final blessing. And then later on, much later on, you have Laban kind of in a sour grapes, if I could use the phrase again, scenario, not happy that he's going away saying goodbye. Um, so kind of angry a little bit and hurt. 
guilt trip, for sure. But then some realization that I know how close you were. Now, he uses your father's house. He's probably closer, I would think, to Jacob, his mother. Um, as a mild man who stayed in camp, the rabbis, when they talk about this, is kind of like a homebody. That's basically how they paint, you know, somebody. They also said he was, like, studying and stuff like that. Um, but more of, like, an intellectual type, not necessarily an outdoorsy type. Um, and mm -hmm. like to stay close to home, which means that it might have been harder for him to make that break, leaving his, uh, his parents' house. And one thing that's interesting is one of the names for uh, the Jewish people um, is, or the house of Israel is Beit Yaakov, um, which, so it's this whole theme of the house of Jacob and the home and how he had to leave home to create a new home and then eventually come back to his ancestral ancestral home. Um, we also have Jacob fleeing once again or leaving. Um, but what you don't know from this section is Laban was potentially angry and wanted to exact revenge on Jacob. But Laban had a dream and in the dream Laban was told specifically by God to leave him alone. So even if Laban had an inkling that he wanted to retaliate, that he knew that if he did that, he was going to be in deep trouble from, you know, God upstairs. Um, now for the stairway to heaven. So this is the latter dream. And this is Jacob's kind of spiritual awakening. I'll read this. Jacob had a dream. This is in right in the beginning of the uh, Torah portion. A stairway was set on the ground and its top reached to the sky. It could also be a ladder. And angels of God were going up and down on it. God was standing beside him and said, I am Adonai, God of your father Abraham, God of Isaac. The ground on which you're lying, I will assign to you and your offspring. And then this is Jacob's response according to the narrator. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely God is present in this place. And I did not know it. So the name of the place of spiritual awakening, we learn from the narrator, is... Beit El, so the house of God. So you continue to have this house or home type of uh, recurring theme that's uh, going through. And to a certain extent, like the Jean-Paul Sartre, there's going to be some sort of pillar. Although in this case, um, the, the Hebrew word is matzeva, which is a stone, which can be a stone pillar. And then 
the, the Hebrew said Jacob places it firmly into the ground. So maybe unlike one of those hikers' cairns or those pyramid-looking rock setups, um, this one is digging in deep into the ground, meaning he probably had to excavate a little hole in order to put this stone there, meaning he wanted it to stay there for a really long time, not just something that could be toppled over by the next group that came to the campsite, um, so to speak. Now, one question is, where do you think this is taking place, this particular stone? Can't really tell. You know it's on the way back to the land of Israel. Rashi's going to come to the rescue again. Rashi's going to be the one who always wants, what is the simple, most straightforward answer to the question that I'm asking of the Bible? And the question that Rashi has is, it says, surely God is pleasant in this place. We know the place is called Beit El, house of God. But where is this actual place? Rashi's got a really interesting idea, which really brings it home. And it's right here in text number eight. So who'd like to read this by Rashi? Dorsey. The text actually says that he came upon a certain place and stopped there for the night, which points to a place mentioned elsewhere in the text, Mount Moriah. It was as if two places on earth folded together for him so that all he had to do was step from Haran back to Mount Moriah. This is pretty wild. I just watched uh, uh, A Wrinkle in Time again with uh, my daughter. She wanted to see, she wanted to see it. And they talk about like tessering, which is obviously like not real, but uh, but it's kind of like, you know, warping from one place to another. And it's like Rashi is a very vivid imagination. It's kind of like folding the map. And Jacob kind of goes through some sort of a wormhole in the map from Haran. And he ends up on Mount Moriah. Now, where is Mount Moriah? And what important place, what important things happened there? I'll give you a hint. It's in Jerusalem. Jackie, do you have the more, more specific place? If you're talking, no one can hear you. You're, you're muted, Jackie. Jackie, you're muted, so you might be saying great things, but I can't hear you. Okay. It is uh, the Temple Mount, and that it is also where uh, Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac, if I remember correctly. Absolutely. So why do you think Rashi wants to connect this place that's somewhere on the way back, but we don't know where, to Moriah? I certainly have an idea. So all three patriarchs are going to have something to do now. With Mount No. Um, well, I'm just curious because we often 
uh, in, uh, referred to uh, God as the place. And so connecting it to a, everything relating to God to the place is Mount Moriah. It is where God is always. Absolutely. And all of this is connected. You know, the place yeah. is the Makom, and Makom is God, and God can be wherever that place is in your mind, or for you personally. Um, but given that Jacob had been away for so long, Rashi is kind of weaving him back into the Lador Vador generational narrative of the Jewish people living in the land of Israel. So kind of really bringing him totally back home. Uh, question, we go until 12 exactly, correct? Is that correct? Okay. So let's see. I, I have a question about the, the two places folded yep. together. Is that an earthquake or a lava flow? Did something happen? It's just Rashi's imagination. Rashi wanted to bring him back into the fold or into the narrative of the patriarchs and matriarchs in the land of Israel continuing the line of Jewish tradition. And this was one of the ways that he thought that he could do that. Um, and a lot of what the, the Midrash or the commentary is, is one individual's idea of how to make sense of the Torah place. It, it, it involves a very close reading of the text. So someone like Rashi is going to pick up on one particular word. Surely God is in this place. And then he's going to riff on where this place is going to be. Um, and then because the place is Makom, and the rabbis then talk about this, it's no surprise later on that Hamakom is one of the more well-known names of God. Um, so here's... One more in text number nine. So on Hanukkah and Purim, you're supposed to say the Hanisim prayer, all Hanisim, for the miracles. Um, so there's a later Midrash which talks about a makom, another place, but this time having to do with Joseph, because the rabbis were asking the question, why do we do this prayer called Al-Hanisim for the miracles on, like, what is the miracle? Because it said, we thank God for the miracles, redemptions, mighty deeds, and wars which you waged for our fathers in the days of old. So one of the rabbis is going to come up with a, a commentary saying that they saw Joseph returning from burying his father. So that is the burial of Jacob, because Jacob moved to, to Egypt at the end of the book of Genesis and then swear, has his son swear that he's going to bring him back 
to Israel because the home of Israel is very important to him. Um, and the brothers saw Joseph looking at something. The brothers thought that now that their father Jacob was gone, Joseph was going to exact revenge. But that actually wasn't the case, at least according to this rabbi, um, Rabbi Tanfum. Uh, and the Mishnah is Tanhuma, after his name. Uh, Joseph went to look at the pit which the brothers had thrown him in in order to recite, Blessed is Makom, who performed a miracle for me in this place. And in this case, the Makom is God. And then later on in the sentence, they use the word place. And the final quote that I think uh, a little bit brings into, this is from uh, Lawrence Kushner's book, God was in this place and I, I did not know. It talks about, remember that earlier text of sometimes the absence, you can tell so much by the absence. So here he's talking about the legend of Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav's empty chair. Um, when he died, the Hasidim never appointed a successor for the Bratislavers. Um, after his death, the chair was smuggled out of the Ukraine, put back together in the shul in Meisharim in Jerusalem. Rabbi Lawrence Kushner went there and said, how easy was it for me to find the presence of a Rebbe? Lawrence Kushner is a reform rabbi, very mystical oriented, mystically oriented. And he was reminded that being empty is not always the same as not being there. So sometimes the presence of a person is what they do and the actions, but also sometimes it's the legacy of the person, not necessarily after they die, that's for sure, but even when they're still alive, but their presence is still felt um, in an area. That wraps us up pretty much exactly at noon. So I hope you enjoyed this week's edition of Parsha Pathways. I'm going to put the stop share on. Thank you so much for everyone who participated and did readings. Glad to be here. I enjoyed Thank it. Thank you very Hope much. You. Shabbat shalom to all of you and have a great Thanksgiving Shabbat too. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Thank you, Tom. It's good seeing you too. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's Parsha Pathways. We hope that this episode filled your heart, mind, and soul with Jewish wisdom. Don't forget to stop by jewishgulfcoast.org to explore everything that the Federation has to offer. And we look forward to bringing you next week's Parsha. Shabbat Shalom.